This is chapter three of Ezra Beta's Being Zen. The chapter title is Swiss Cheese. Let's imagine ourselves as a big piece of Swiss cheese, including all the holes. The holes are our identities, mental constructs, desires, blind spots, stuck places, all those aspects of ourselves that seem to get in the way of realizing our cheese nature. Sometimes when a meditator gets a glimpse that he's the whole cheese, he forgets these also little holes and instead sees himself as a big cheese. However, we are more likely to identify solely with the little holes, being fearful, being a victim, being confused, being right, and so on. In doing so, we forget our basic cheese nature, the vastness, God, call it what you will. We are the little holes, we can't ignore that, but we're also the whole cheese, and we can't ignore that either. When we finally see the little holes for what they are, then we see they are truly holes, that is, of no substantial reality. As with all analogies, this one falls short of presenting a complete or accurate view of the practice life. But the point of self-observation is to see which little holes we find ourselves believing in. We might then also see how our belief in the substantiality of these little holes prevents us from experiencing the big hole. This understanding is not theoretical. It has to be experiential. How does the practice life take us there? One common approach to practice is to emphasize a breakthrough or enlightenment experiences in which we pierce the bubble of our normal consciousness, seeing clearly and profoundly into what is real. One problem with this approach is that often we mistakenly take these openings for some higher reality other than natural order of things. The whole focus of practice then centers on having an experience, assuming that only with this experience will come permanent freedom, enlightenment. This is a very romantic view. It is also a fantasy. No experience is permanent nor can any singular experience make us permanently free. This is not to say that these experiences are not useful. They can be inspiring. They can help point the way. But unless our practice filters directly into our everyday life, what's the point? There is another approach to practice, one that is not nearly as romantic as seeking after enlightenment. It involves practicing directly with what is, whatever it is. I call this living the practice life. It particularly involves coming back again and again to the present moment, which of course has always been an essential aspect of Zen and other contemplative traditions. What separates this approach from seeking experiences is the emphasis on working with issues they we would normally not regard as spiritual, in fact, they're often the issues we wish would go away. They're all the moldy little holes in the Swiss cheese. 
Do we walk around in anxiety or confusion? Do we get angry whenever we're criticized? Do we live our life with a deep and pervasive sense of shame? And what activities are we driven by fear? Can we extend kindness toward ourselves? Is there even one person we can't forgive? And practicing with these sticky questions and allowing the messiness of our everyday lives to clarify them experientially, the bigger picture naturally becomes clearer. For example, when anger arises in our everyday life circumstances, we can let anger be our practice. As much as we would prefer to be calm, peaceful, and clear, the reality of the present moment is anger. Until we attend to the anger from a practice perspective, it will continue to narrow our life and close our heart. On the other hand, working directly with the anger cultivates our ability to open to the willingness to just be. How do we work directly with anger, or for that matter, with any strong emotion? How can we work with all the holes in our cheese nature? In working with my teacher, Joko Beck, I've learned two particular approaches. The first involves clarifying our belief systems, and the second is experiencing the physical reality of the present moment. Clarifying our belief systems is simply modern terminology for the ancient and universal teaching, know thyself. It involves precise self-observation, seeing how we think, what we think, how we react, what our personal strategies are. As we practice observing ourselves, we gradually become intimately familiar with our particular system, including all the beliefs and attitudes that run our life. Clarifying our beliefs is not about analyzing or eradicating or changing them. It's about seeing clearly what they are, not what they're about. The primary tool that we use to clarify our beliefs is thought labeling. In many meditation practices, the instruction is, when thoughts arise, let them go. The instruction is to try to calm and clear the mind. This is nice if we can do it, but often we can't simply let go of our thoughts. Our minds can be very busy and stay that way for long periods of time. It seems that we humans cannot so easily bypass our evolutionary inheritance of an overactive brain. In some meditation practices, the instruction for dealing with these ever-arising thoughts is to say, thinking, thereby breaking the identification with the thinking, and then return the attention to the breath or some other focus point. Although this is a definite improvement on just trying to let thoughts go, it still doesn't really help clarify what we're up to. This is where thought labeling comes in. Thought labeling is a precise tool that can help in two ways. First, it breaks our identification with our thinking, allowing us to learn to see our thoughts as just thoughts. Second, it allows us to know what we're thinking. Let's say you're sitting in meditation, trying to be aware of the breath, and you notice that you're thinking about what a busy day you have ahead of you. 
the thought label, you would simply repeat this thought to yourself, saying, having a thought that I have too much to do. It's like having a parrot on your shoulder, stating the thoughts verbatim as they arise in the mind. At first, thought labeling may seem very mental. It may seem as if the labeling itself were making our minds spin more than ever. That's only because we're not used to it. It takes time for thought labeling to break us out of our mental tape loops. Just to get some experience with the process, we might start by spending at least five minutes near the beginning of each meditation period labeling every thought. After that, we don't need to label all the thoughts. For example, when I find myself thinking inconsequential or mundane thoughts, I use generic labels such as planning, fantasizing, daydreaming, or conversing. Labeling this way makes it clear to me what my mind is doing. It usually interrupts the pattern enough to move me out of the mental realm. However, when I become aware of even the hint of an emotion, I return to labeling the specific thought. For example, I'm meditating, and my body is starting to ache from sitting still in a cross-legged position. I become aware that I'm feeling agitated and catch my mind believing that this is too hard. I immediately identify the thought saying to myself, having a believed thought that this is too hard, or having a believed thought that I have to move. After some practice labeling in this way, the unspoken thought that's running the whole show, if there is one, may gradually become clear. Here I might see my basic underlying belief. Quote, life should be free from pain, end quote. Or, quote, life should be comfortable, end quote. As this belief becomes clear, I label it in the same way. There's quite a difference between thinking, thus believing, that life should be comfortable, and saying, having a believed thought that life should be comfortable. Although we might label it a hundred or a thousand times, at some point, we see that even the most stubborn thought is not necessarily the truth about reality, but just a thought. We might also see that this particular thought has been silently directing our behavior. Here we become aware where before we were blind. Our blind spots are blind by definition, but with the meticulous application of thought labeling, the light of awareness begins to clarify the once unseen beliefs that have dictated many of our unskillful behavior patterns. We often don't realize the extent of our own blind spots, how we don't know ourselves and all the havoc we create, the unending havoc with both ourselves and others. We can know all about practice. We can know all about the techniques. But sometimes we underestimate the relentlessness and the honesty that are required to really face the fears out of which all our blind beliefs and behaviors arise. The problem, in a way, is that we know too much. We certainly think too much. We often talk too much. It's very easy to have knowing thinking and talking replace the hard work, the often painful work of genuine practice. Not to say that practice has to be a dark and grim task. 
the more honest we are at looking at ourselves, at seeing through our blind spots and cover strategies, the lighter we become. Why? Because in becoming more aware, we can give up our unnecessary baggage, the self-images that we cling to, the pretenses, the someone special we think we need to be. The first time I met Joko Beck was in a formal interview at a retreat, and I was anxious about how to relate to a famous Zen teacher. I sat down and told her my name. She asked me, where are you from? I immediately froze in fear. I thought she was asking me the ultimate Zen question. When I answered, I don't know, she burst out laughing. She meant, where did I live? I come in with so many assumptions about what Zen was, what a famous Zen teacher would be like, who I was supposed to be, and it never occurred to me to inspect these pictures. Because I had not yet learned the value of labeling thoughts, I bought into my pictures as uninspected truths. Since then, I have seen time and again how crucial this basic practice of thought labeling can be in clarifying the countless layers of illusions that silently run our lives. But sometimes we forget that this process takes time and perseverance. Sometimes we forget about all the basic training we must do, not just in the beginning, but throughout the practice life, about how often we have to repeat our efforts, such as with thought labeling. Thought labeling is a primary tool in helping us to see the holes in the Swiss cheese for what they are. As we break our identification with our beliefs, we no longer call them me. As we stop believing in each little hole, we relate increasingly from the clarity of the bigger whole. But we must realize that thought labeling does not come naturally or easily. The precision, honesty, and perseverance required to do this practice meticulously may take years to develop. Clarifying our belief systems is about becoming aware. But this approach is just part of our basic practice. The second approach, which is equally essential, is more difficult to describe clearly. This second approach can be called experiencing. What experiencing is, we will touch on throughout this book in a variety of contexts. Essentially, it's an awareness of the physical reality of the present moment. In part, it's an awareness of the sensations in the body, including, but not limited to, the sensations of the breath. It's also an awareness of environmental phenomena, such as sounds, sights, and smells. To get a taste of this, become aware right now. What do you feel in your body? Where are your strongest sensations? Pick one sensation. Specifically, how does it feel? What is its texture? Now become aware of the environment. Are there any sounds? How does the air feel on your skin? Notice how unfamiliar this experiencing of the physical reality of the present moment may be to you. 
Notice the sense of presence that comes upon leaving the mental world and entering the physical experience of the moment. This experiencing is only possible when we are not caught in thinking. This two-part approach to practice, clarifying our beliefs and experiencing physical reality, allows us to widen our container of awareness to include even our most difficult emotional reactions to life. We can even learn to relate to our worst fears, our deepest shame, our most unwanted feelings, whatever holes we are caught in, in a new way. As we clarify our believed thoughts, no longer taking them as truth, and as we reside in the bodily component of our experience, we begin to see that our experience of these little holes is actually nothing more than a combination of deeply believed thoughts and a complex of subtle and not-so-subtle, uncomfortable bodily sensations. Seeing this, and I mean seeing it in the way that fosters real understanding, is a taste of freedom. As our container of awareness enlarges, we find that we can now be with these little holes while not believing in them quite so solidly. With awareness, with awareness, our artificial, self-limiting view of who we are becomes more porous. We can then begin to connect with the reality of life as it is. It's like taking off our colored glasses and seeing without the filter of our conditioning, desires, and judgments. It's like taking our foot out of a tight shoe. The sense of restriction and boundary disappears. But of course, within no time at all, we reclaim our colored glasses and tight shoes. For though we sense the freedom of living with what is, we still prefer our familiar patterns, tight shoes and all. The process of settling into the willingness to just be is slow and halting. Resistance within the process returns again and again. As we practice, we continually struggle between the yes and the no, between residing in the struggle and spinning off toward our illusion of comfort and security. But somewhere along the way, the gradual shift from unwillingness to willingness may take place. It is this crucial shift to the willingness to just be that finally allows us to be with life as it is, holes and all. Again, the holes don't necessarily go away. We simply see them for what they are, no longer investing them with solid belief. This transformative process is both the heart and the fruit of practice.